hello, hello. You are listening to A Pastor's Newspaper with Dr. Castro, a podcast helping you read the news with the Bible in your hand. This is Dr. Castro. It's good to be with you. It's been a long time. I know we had Christmas, we had turn of a new year, and now it's almost March, and this is the first episode of season three, which is super sad. A lot's been going on in my world and have kind of kept me from recording anything and I uh, do apologize for that, but excited for a new season of A Pastor's Newspaper. And I was hoping to have some some guests on and maybe we'll get that at some point in the in the spring. We'd love to bring some people on to talk about just some some art and films and, and music that people are listening to and books to read just to make some suggestions for you. But I did want to say we one of my, my two of my past guests on this podcast are no longer at Central. And that's been a, a sad thing that happened kind of in January. And so that's kind of kept me away. And so hoping to get, get them on here at some point in the future. But if you had listened to third Saturday in October, my friend Derek is left Central just recently and is potentially moving out of the area, and and so that was sad. So that that podcast probably isn't going to happen. Maybe something will happen in the future. We'll all know. But I love talking college football with with my friend Derek, and lots happened. You know, Nick Saban left Alabama, so a lot is changing in the world of college sports. And so, but I know most of you are big college basketball fans with either the Tigers or the Vols or the Razorbacks or the Rebels and other SEC schools. But uh, looking forward to March and probably we'll give you some talk a little bit about March Madness when we get to that point. It's always interesting, kind of these random schools that pop up. I think my first season of A Pastor's Paper, we talked about one of these schools and uh, it made it all the way to this, I think, the Elite Eight. So it's always fun. These kind of random schools they don't know much about will kind of kind of peak during March Madness, but a lot's happening in the world. We have an election going on right now with the Republican primary, now only down to two candidates in the South Carolina primary coming up very, very soon. But, and one of the things I, I did launch, if you're interested, I did launch a, a website for you to kind of read some, some articles about news and politics and culture. That is a, a, partnerincitizens.org. You can check that out. And we're taking a lot of these episodes and turning them into written articles that you can read. One of the things that we included was the length of the article, like how long will it take you to read? That really does help. Like, oh, is this going to be like a 20-minute read or a 30-minute read? A lot of our articles are like five-minute reads, so you can kind of read them quickly. John Andrew Clayton, who was a guest on this podcast when we talked about World Cup and soccer, he took a job recently in New York as a pastor. And so he left Central not too long ago, and actually the month of January. So a lot's kind of again like I happened. A lot happened in January, but he is a partner in that website, and we are actually in the in the plans to start a podcast together. Even though we're separated in, in geography, we can do something together, kind of with modern technology. We are going to start a missions podcast, and that kind of takes you know the 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 kind of the vision of the heart of of partners and citizens is to talk about missions and politics and kind of where those two things meet. And so that podcast will kind of carve out or scratch the missions niche for our partners and citizens website and our kind of channel 
And so I want to just encourage you to check out that website. These podcasts, a pastor's newspaper is all on that website that you, so you can listen to it there as well. But getting into this, this new year, 2024, again, like I said, we have an election season with the Republican primary is, is going on and it looks like former president Trump will win that nomination. And so it'll be a Trump Biden part two, kind of like the, I think there was a few Super Bowls where the Bills and the Cowboys played back-to-back years in the Super Bowl. The Cowboys won both in that particular story. But uh, so we're going to talk a lot about the election coming up this year. And so we'll have a lot of episodes about that. But one of the interesting things as we look at the, the two primaries, especially on the GOP side in Iowa and New Hampshire, and and if you go to that partnersandcitizens.org website, there's two just analysis that I provided on those two primaries. But what was interesting about those two primaries, now Iowa and New Hampshire are very different. The GOP voters are different. You have a lot more evangelical voters in Iowa. You have more Catholic voters in New Hampshire. Is what was a really important issue to Republican voters. Now, President Trump, former President Trump won those primaries pretty, pretty handily. He won Iowa by more than he won New Hampshire. But one of the major issues kept popping up in these two states, and that was immigration and the view of Ukraine. And it's what's interesting right now with conservatives and the Republican Party is Republicans have become far more um, isolationist. They're kind of abandoning the kind of American exceptionalism that is engaging in the world, right? That we are America and we we think, you know, freedom and liberty and capitalism are important and we would like to spread that that truth or that view and principles to the world. And if you if really if you look at and that's really one of I would say Ronald Reagan's visions which when you think of any GOP candidate you know, that was always the kind of the go-to is how can I reflect Reagan, right? And he was he's such a pillar within the conservative movement for a very long time. But actually, his influence has definitely waned as, you know, President Trump has taken a lot more of the influence over the party. And, of course, Trump kind of came in in 2016 on this kind of wave of isolationism, America first kind of in some way, rejecting some of uh, rejecting some of the the global institutions that America started after World War II, that really kind of defined the 20th century of American engagement in the world, was some of, through these some of these orders, these institutions, these global institutions like the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, NATO, which is far far more you know European focused, and all the global like G20, the G7, all the big economic powers in the world discussing free trade and economic policies and environmental policies and you know nuclear weapon deterrent and all these different things to create because really if you want to maybe boil everything down to the view is that democracies tend not to fight against each other. There's, you know, democracies and not being ruled by a, a central power who tend to try to define themselves through legacy building. And a lot of times legacy building is how much, 
you know, land you can conquer. You know, that's always been kind of the, the tendency of world powers for most of history is, is leaders and rulers who want to be known as great to their people. And a lot of times that is, you know, conquering other nations. That was very much a part of Germans, Germany's issues with World War One, with Kaiser Wilhelm, and then with Hitler, but even with the Russians and Putin currently right now. But if you are more defined by, you know, democracy and the populace of the people and their needs, and you know, the people don't want to go to war because usually the time it's them that have to fight the war. And and so free trade across countries is far more important. And war actually is not very cost effective. Like it costs a lot of money to go to war and you can't really trade with a person you want to war with. Right. You can't like really benefit from them if you're killing and kind of, you know, somewhat bombing their natural resources. So we want, I want to talk about as, as kind of start off season three is is globalism. And where is globalism currently today? Where is America and its involvement, engagement in the world? We see right now, and I think I talked about this in the fall, kind of with the, after October, with the start of the, the war in Israel, with Gaza, with Hamas, I guess is probably a better way to say it. That war currently has very much spread across the Middle East. There as there's 10 nations currently that are involved in this 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 crisis some of them you probably can think of pretty quickly off the top of head but some of them you know, may, may be surprising to you but you have israel palestine or hamas but also you know the entire palestinian nation syria jordan iran lebanon the u.s yemen pakistan in Iraq. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of nations being impacted by what's happened between Israel and Gaza. Now that war has expanded. That was kind of the view that thought that it would probably expand. There is kind of hope right now that Israel will stop its advancement in Gaza, broker some type of ceasefire for the sake of getting all the hostages out right now amongst Israeli citizens, 15%, only 15 people, 15% support Benjamin Netanyahu and want more intervention there. They want, they want the hostages back. I think that there's a view that more advancement into Gaza is going to prevent the hostages being released. What's so interesting, I think there's still there's still hope that there will be real change in Hamas and Gaza, and then there'll be that the the treaty of an alliance or an economic alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia is still on the table, and so because that actually, and if you go back and remember, that was the reason for the Hamas's, you know, terrorist attack on Israel was to prevent the agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And that deal is still on the table. And there's a good, it's still about 50, 50% chances that this, that deal could still go through. And basically Hamas would have failed. And so would have Iran. And I think that's the bigger price. The bigger prize in this whole thing is Israel, legitimately being recognized by the Saudi by the Saudi Arabian government that Salam and the royal family will 
it is you know when you think of the Middle East, it's a it's a it's really kind of like a, a Cold War a mentality between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and both are battling for influence in the region. And for one of those powers to recognize Israel is huge. And if you want to just think from a wealth perspective, Saudi Arabia is far wealthier and more powerful economically than Iran is. And so that would be huge for the region and for the United States who do not want to be dragged into Middle Eastern crises one after the other. So that's the bigger prize. I think that's what the U.S. wants. That's what the U.S. is pushing for, is that they can kind of, I mean, and Israel has pretty much, you know, taken over half of Gaza to kind of see, okay, there's going to be a military presence in the Gaza by the Israelis for the foreseeable future, that the big price, the big prize for us is is my, our relationship with the Gulf states. And that will that will really put a that will hurt Iran, who's the the bigger villain in this whole story, right? And and that really is kind of where we are in the global world is that there are there is the the US and the Western powers, and then there's China, Russia, and Iran, and kind of this new world order. And for the Saudis to be in alliance with Israel and for them to be in alliance with the U.S. really does help there to be progress within the Middle East and the U.S. not being dragged into every issue that pops up. And I think that's the kind of what I want to talk because that's the big issue in the in the election is what is the America's future in the global world? And amongst conservatives, there is a major push to disengage. There's a view that we have we're $34 trillion in the debt. We have a southern border crisis, more resources economically and defense resources should be spent on the border, not in Ukraine, not in the Middle East. But I think the the one I really want to talk about Ukraine, because that really is kind of the 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 one where has been spoken about in debates is the U S should no longer be supporting Ukraine's war against Russia. Now let's just make sure we know the facts. Ukraine did not spark a war with Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine. And there is actually just to kind of share this with you. There is a, in 1994, there's a, the Budapest memorandum. And in that memorandum it was the u.s great britain and russia at this time the ukrainians had nuclear weapons and they wanted to deter them from from having these nuclear weapons so they made this agreement with the ukrainian government that and people that that they would protect their borders if they were ever invaded well the russians invaded ukraine and the u.s by this memorandum in 94 were to come and with break Britain were to come to support Ukrainians if they were ever invaded to help their, their, their border and protect their border. So to, again, to support what we've promised and there's a bigger thing, it be a bigger price. There's a bigger issue at, at hand that if we want to prevent Russia and Putin from advancing further into Europe, then this is this is kind of the price we pay. And again, 
if we look at the just the facts, we are not sending boots. We're not sending U.S. planes into Ukraine. No American lives have been lost in our support. We are supporting them with weapons. And we have given, I think, you know, we've given $113 billion to Ukraine to this, to, uh, this point. But most of that aid... It's actually been weapons that we've already we've already made, and so and some of these weapons were kind of on the shelf, and there's and we're providing them these weapons that are in some ways secondhand, and so it's really not costing us. And there's actually a, a report by AI that ninety percent of the money spent, ninety percent of the money given to the Ukrainians in their war effort has been spent in the U.S. And, and basically American defense companies and contractors have used that money to make weapons for Ukraine. So that's helping the U.S. economy in the long run. So it's really not costing us much. So that, that this is such a big political issue is the big surprise. And already U.S. You know, military experts have said that our efforts in Ukraine are actually helping us long term because it's building up reserves in our armory. It's helping the military and its readiness. It's we're already seeing some of the, the flaws in our logistics. And so it's helping us be more prepared for an eventual war with China or other nations because of our support of the Ukraine and our support of Ukraine prevents us from having to spend more money later down the road to fight a war with the Russians in Europe. You know, one of the things is learning from past mistakes in history. The U.S. stayed out of World War II for far too long. And because they stayed out of the war far too long, they had to then spend more American lives and more money later on when it got worse. Um, U.S. did not support the Europeans and the British, especially when the Germans started bombing at London, we did not help. Not until we were attacked at Pearl Harbor and lost 2000 plus American lives. Then we got involved in the war, but the war was at a point where it was going to be much harder to push the Germans out of France and to push the Japanese out of the islands and out of China. And so it's, I think what we're doing in Ukraine is important and I think it is a big political issue. And I think it's actually going to see a big dividing line between Democrats and Republicans in the election on this issue of Ukraine. And if you look at which this is all very interesting, as you look at percentages and where people are, conservatives now are far more promoting disengagement where Democrats are supporting engagement. 54% of Republican voters favor disengagement on the global scale, in the global stage. 56% of Democrats, of Democratic voters, favor engagement on on the global stage. That went from, for Democrats, that went from 34% to 56%. And for Republicans, they went from 40 to 54%, which presents an interesting... Democrats were against the war in the Middle East when Bush was president. But now that there's a Democrat in the office, now there's support 
for engagement. So it just really kind of depends on who's in office at the time. Trump being an isolationist, you see the how that has affected the Republican views on engagement in the global world. And it even presents some, some other kind of interesting facts that U.S. is ranked 17th when it comes money per capita spent on the support of Ukraine. U.S. ranks 17th. Norway and the Baltic states are far higher up on the list. They're spending 1% of their GDP on supporting Ukraine. And Finland and Sweden, who were very much disengaged when it came to NATO, are now spending far more money on defense. So one of the issues about Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, all that it's done is actually awaken those who have been on a long holiday, the Germans, the Baltics, the Scandinavian countries, France, these countries are now investing in defense. They're supporting the Ukrainians far more than they're than the that by 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 total dollars, but by percentage of the GDP. US is getting far less. So we're not supporting the Ukrainians at, at a level that's so, far superior than everyone else. A lot of nations are supporting this. We are a part of that support, and I think we should continue that support. And and I, I think it's it's an issue that, you know, as Reagan said in the eighties, that we we are we should pursue peace through strength. And I think this is one of those particular issues that that Republicans should be supporting of of pursuing peace in Ukraine through strength, right? So as we think about the global world currently, China is increasing their military. They're spending far more on their military and their defense than the U.S. It's been historic that the U.S. has viewed that their defense spending should be about 4% of their GDP. We're down to 3%. And I wonder when, if President Trump does win re-election, if he wins, you know, not re-election, but it's just a weird election because he's, he won, then lost, and then if he wins again, will he invest in getting that defense spending up to that 4% of the GDP because the Ukraine issue is not potentially may not be the last of these, these, these nations a part of this new world order of China, Russia, and Iran that will invade another nation that we are in alliance with, that we support the, the Chinese potential invasion of Taiwan. The U S has publicly said that we would protect Taiwan if China were to invade. Well, if we don't support Ukraine here, that and I would say it emboldens China to the invade Taiwan, knowing that the U.S. will not actually support their ally. So I think the U.S. is this is an important time to, again, invest in strength for the sake of pursuing peace. Investing in strength to pursue pursue peace, and there is a very much a you know there is a an Iranian thread to all of this. There's a Chinese thread to all of this. What's happening in Israel? What's happening in Ukraine? This this new world order that China is is really the leader of of China, Russia, and Iran to be a alternative to the U.S. order of the U.S. and Britain. European powers, the EU, Canada, and other Western nations, that there is a, is a, we're in a new Cold War. 
and these different different proxies, these different battles are a part of this this engagement between these two world orders. So what's happening in Ukraine really isn't just a Ukrainian-Russian issue. Putin would like for the Western world to think of it that way, that this is just Putin. He's wanting to protect Russian-speaking people that live in Ukraine, and that's the reason for the invasion. The, the, bigger, the bigger truth of this all is that there's, there's two world orders. There's one led by the U.S., and there's one led by China. And what's happening in Ukraine is very much similar to what happened throughout the 20th century. And I think that's just the, the people we need to wake up to this to this truth. And for the sake of pursuing peace, we have to show strength and really continuing to support Ukraine in their war with Russia, I believe is the right thing to do. Because I believe the U.S., there, I think what we're, what we're seeing is, is that there, you know, the, when we think about globalism that kind of, really started just to kind of take you down a, a list of or just to kind of sh- explain some some history is that really globalism started in the 19th century and during that time there was there was a congress the congress of of vienna and i'm going to pull up my notes of kind of in beginning of the, the 19th century there was a Congress in Vienna, and this was a gathering of some European powers, leaders amongst European powers, Austria, the Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire, Russia, England, and France. And the, the goal of these, uh, these powers coming together was for the good of the continent. They wanted to come together and promote you know, peace and trade, but also... Individual nations didn't want to get dragged into local skirmishes and wars, and they wanted to kind of like come together and and, and hope for the good of the entire continent. And the problem was is that there was very little common interest in this. At that time of, of the in the time of history, there was still very much a kingdom perspective, and you know the pursuit of my own growth of my own kingdom. And hence why you get to World War One and World War Two. I mean, it, it, there are some I read recently, you know, in, in the past about, you know, the French had their empire during Napoleon. And then, of course, the Congress of Vienna happened right after Napoleon, right? After the French tried to occupy Europe. That was Napoleon's goal was to occupy the world, right? Because, you know, the English had their empire. The French wanted their empire. The Spaniards had their empire. Everybody wanted their time in the sun. So when you get to World War One, that's the Germans. They wanted their empire. The Kaiser wanted his empire. He wanted to be the new Napoleon. And hence why he invaded France. Right? And so after the World War One and the millions upon millions of deaths for really nothing, I mean they literally fought over grass patches. You had the Versailles Conference. And you had Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States at the time, League of Nations, freedom of trade on the seas, and that no longer the world would go to war. The, this is the, you know, war wars, the war to end all wars. But, you know, the problem was, is that once the Japanese invaded China and the Italians invaded Mussolini, invaded Ethiopia, no European or U.S. power came to defend that invasion. Again, it was in their interest. What happened in Ethiopia, what happened in China is not my business. 
which then sparked World War II. Eight years after the League of Nations, World War II is sparked. The Japanese Empire, the German Empire, the ambitions of, of madmen. Um, well, after World War II, there was an establishment of the United Nations in 1945 because the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb. So now this, the, to see the destruction of science, a desire that with more nuclear weapons being, being used, the Soviets used one in 1949 to show that they had one, that the world was going to destroy itself by science, by the bomb. So Harvard and scientists at Harvard came together and they established the United Nations that nations would no longer go to war against one another. There, there was a common interest because of the bomb that we had to work together, that there had to be a global government. And that's what the United Nations, I think, in a lot of ways, was meant to be, was a, a group of nations coming together for the sake of world peace. Well, the 20th century is known for more destruction than any other century in the war and history. So that failed. And then you have other Britain Woods, which was economists in New Hampshire, free trade and the dollar being established as the currency that would back foreign aid, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund. Nowadays, foreign aid is seen as neo-colonialism, right? Western and, and rich and powerful nations holding developing nations down through foreign aid. And actually, that's where China, even though it has its build up its defense, it's also very much investing in foreign aid because they see that as the path to dominance over a lot of developing nation is through aid. So that, you know, and the U.S. couldn't be, the dollar couldn't be the de facto only currency to support all of the foreign aid that we gave away, right? We just can't support in and we're not we're we're wealthy but we're not that wealthy right we can't basically be the the bank for the entire world well then covid-19 happened right and right now all of these institutions throughout the 20th century even all the way back to the 19th century these this pursuit of globalism has kind of has failed i mean covid-19 was a great example of that climate change nations are still only care about what's best for them so that the concerns of the of their fellow man is just not something that that gives them any resolve to be involved hence why the US wouldn't join the world war 2 until we you know we were attacked by the japanese and so we i think we 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 understand that while there's a desire for peace in the world and for war to be a rare thing there's there's an acknowledgement that the world there's just people with different worldviews and perspectives on life and i think you know jfk made the, the famous speech you know we all breathe the same air we all cherish our children's future right we we sh we have more in common we have the same creator right and and so as, you know, as Christians, as those who are a part of the church, we know that we do want people's, we want people to be in peace. We want people to not be killed. We are pro-life, right? And, you know, as, as Americans, I think we should, you know, encourage engagement in the world. I think the United States has done, sure, the United States has made a lot of mistakes, right? Sinful people has, have led in the United States, right? Um, Sinful people have voted for leaders, but the God has used America in exceptional ways. 
And I believe that for America right now, it's not to disengage on the world stage, but to re-engage on the world stage. And I think that's always been the heart of America. And I think it stirs us always in the right direction to be engaged. And I think, you know, we can't only care about what's happening around us. And I think this tends to be where I kind of want to go with this. And I think ultimately, you know, as we think through all this, we pray the Lord, we knowing the Lord sovereign over everything that's happening, right? The Lord has a plan. The Lord is, 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 has a, a will that he's accomplishing through the events of history and through the acts of men and women, nations and Kings and dictators and all and governments and all these different things. But here, in the here and now, I think where I think my heart is in all of this, maybe to pull it away from the political arena and just looking at it from a from a missional standpoint is is that I think it does affect missions as well when we have a heart of disengagement. And I'll explain kind of how I tend to to pick this up. When I hear people say, Hey, we shouldn't be sending money and resources over there. We have far many lost people here, which isn't a is that a it's a true statement. There are lost people around us. But I would say this to them. The the difference between here and there is here, literally you can walk go down the street and you could find a Bible, you can find a church, you can find some Bible study happening, and you can be a part of this, and you can learn about Christianity, you can learn about Christ, you can learn about the gospel, you can learn about how Christ Jesus came to the world to die for sinners, you can put your faith and trust in him and be transformed and, and, and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, you can then be baptized in the local church. That's all true. But there are a lot of places in the world where that's not true. There's a billions of people in the world that do not have access to the gospel at all. They could not, if they even wanted to, go get a Bible. They could not, even if they wanted to, go to a church. And they could not, even if they wanted to, go to a Bible study. That right there is the difference between here and there. They're unreached. If you know someone who is a lost person... By definition, they are reached. They know you. You have the gospel. You can then give it to them. There are many around the world who do not even have access to that. And I think that is the, the heart. I think that maybe is the, the troubling because within the Republican Party are made up of a lot of Christians. Most evangelical voters vote for Republicans, right? I vote Republican. I'm a Republican. Work for the Republican Party. I've been a supporter of the Republican Party since I had the I could vote even before that. In 2000, I stayed up all night with my parents to watch the the election in 2000. I've been engaged with Republican politics since I can remember, right? And so I'm one of you. I'm one of these voters. And I think at the heart, we should be engaged people, engaged with the issues of our city, engaged with the issues of our community, and engaged with the issues of our world. Engagement is significant. God is engaged. He sent his son into the world. Christ ministered and walked and talked and, and healed. He was engaged. The apostles were engaged. When, the, when you see a lot of criticism in the scriptures, especially when you think of like churches, they are criticized for their disengagement. They lost their first love, right? The church of Ephesus. The importance of engagement, I think, is key. Now, sure, you can have you can hold a view on Ukraine 
that's different than mine, and that is okay. But my bigger issue is not the issue of Ukraine and, and should we engage there or not engaged, but should we be engaged people? Like, should we be engaged people? And as a society, as a community of people, as a community of voters, as citizens of America, what is it about us that we are choosing disengagement over engagement? And I think that's the issue that, and the, that, that kind of that, as you see what's happening in Iowa, the Iowa caucus, what you saw in New Hampshire primary, what you'll probably see in the South Carolina primary, is one of the number one issues for Republican voters is they desire for U.S. to be more disengaged. I think that this is a time in history where America should be more engaged, not less engaged. We are in a new, so we're in a new Cold War. And I think it's important for us as we think about issues around the world, where's U.S. placement in all these issues? We're, we're a global leader. We've always been a global leader. I think we should continue to be a global leader. And to be a global leader is to be engaged. And as Christians, as a part of the church, we should be also engaged with the issues of our world and bringing the gospel into those issues. I heard I was talking to a church planner recently and who he is a planter in, in Europe and he was telling me about and I asked him about have you seen what have you what have you seen since the the, the war in Ukraine? And as a lot of Ukrainians have left to, to find safety in their countries, how they've seen these people come to their church and hear the gospel. And that's just an amazing truth. And we don't know what God overall plan with what happened what's happening in Ukraine with the Russians. But I do have hope that the gospel will go forth and that God is providing maybe a bigger door for that gospel. And we should be, as Christians and members of the church, ready to engage when those opportunities are available to us. So we're going to start off our season three with just talking about globalism. And we'll talk more about this issue because it's a really important issue in the election here in 2024. And I look forward to many episodes of engaging this news events that are happening around us. Hope to be back next week. I am going to Switzerland with my wife. I'm looking forward to that and pray for us as we are away. So I hope to have an episode next week and then have an episode after I get back from Switzerland telling you how it was. So I'll be in Europe and hopefully have some good conversations with some Europeans about what's happening in Ukraine. So hope you enjoyed this. Continue to read the news with the Bible in your hand. This has been a pastor in his newspaper with Dr. Castro, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend coming up.